Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. Let's talk about the sport fishing industry in British Columbia now going through tough times during this pandemic, uh, for sure. A lot of uh, tourist-dependent uh, lodges, guide outfitters have been hurt by this downturn. Uh, in business and the travel restrictions as a result of COVID-19. And for a couple of fishing lodges on Haida Gwaii, uh, it's gotten even worse now with the travel ban that was announced last week by the provincial government. There has been an outbreak of COVID-19 on Haida Gwaii, 20 cases there. And the BC government on Thursday announced a travel ban for non-essential travel to Haida Gwaii. And this is blindsided some of the fishing lodges that operate up there. Have a listen to this report here from Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. Queen Charlotte Lodge is a world-renowned luxury fishing destination. Now, peak season, they're being forced to close after the province banned all non-essential travel. I'm in shock. I'm, I'm dismayed. Um, and, and frankly, at the same time, very, very frustrated and angry. The travel ban came amid news there are now 20 COVID-19 cases on Haida Gwaii, 13 of them active. All are believed to be connected to off-island travel by residents. We're in the, in the midst of an outbreak here, so you know any help we can get to um, kind of manage the, the risk of uh, any additional cases coming and just try to um, get this outbreak under control and, and get Haida Gwaii COVID-free. Okay, that was uh, the voice of Duffy Edgars there. He's the chief counselor in Old Masset Village there on Haida Gwaii who were calling for this a travel ban. You also heard the voice in that report of Brian Clive from the Queen Charlotte Lodge, one of the high-end fishing lodges on Haida Gwaii that has been impacted now by this travel ban. They're being forced to shut down. Let's check in now with Owen Bird. He is the CEO of the BC Sport Fishing Institute. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thanks thanks very much, Mike. Uh, thanks for uh, having me this morning. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for doing it. The uh, The sport fishing industry in British Columbia is, is big money. It, it provide, provides a lot of jobs in our in our province. I think it's a, I think it's a great industry for value-added uh, resources in, in our province. And this has been so tough with, with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. What has been the impact on the sport fishing industry in our province because of COVID-19? Well, I mean, I think you said it. It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous value add for, for the resource use in the province, not just big money, but also for uh, regular British Columbians and yeah. uh, small communities up and down and along this coast. And so right. to that end, um, you know, COVID has affected uh, affected the industry and the activity uh, significantly, just like it has the rest okay. of the world. And and uh, you know, one of the one of the good things early on was it was it was determined that that fishing was a uh, was a um, kind of an, an, ex- an essential activity. And so, folks, even during phase two, which seems like a long time ago in many ways, uh, were allowed to get out on the water provided they followed the uh, the proper. Uh, protocols for uh, uh, physical distancing, social distancing, and also for 
um, you know, maintaining their, their bubble. And so until we got to phase three, where folks were allowed to uh, interact uh, and, uh, and move around the province um, and still following the safety guidelines, there was no ability for the industry to operate uh, what's, whatsoever because it just wasn't, right. it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't safe for communities, businesses, individuals, and, and that sort of thing. So um, we were able to, uh, to have uh, guidelines, protocols approved by the province and uh, the safety protocols, and, uh, and those were uh, implemented uh, as soon as phase three came into play. And uh, lodges, uh, guide charter operators, all of those have been following those very carefully and closely and continue to do so. And I think that that will let me sort of get into the the clip that you played and yeah. sort of the, the shock and frustration for those particular lodges up in, in Haida Gwaii. Yes. Um, they were doing that as well. They were following those protocols. And really importantly here, each one of the, the three lodges affected in this in this recent announcement were between 45 and 60 kilometers away from the nearest settlement and community. Wow. And they'd gone to unprecedented lengths to ensure that nobody, nobody was touching foot in a Haida Gwaii community. All of the guests were being transferred through uh, Prince Rupert in Vancouver. So there was exactly zero risk to the Haida Gwaii community. So that, that's where certainly sympathize with uh, Brian Clive's remarks that he was sh- shocked to, yeah. to have this, uh, this come out. Right. I mean, I think it's a, a concern, the number of COVID-19 cases that have been uh, confirmed in Haida Gwaii for sure. If you got 20, 20 uh, positives on an island with the, or archipelago of islands with a small population. But uh, I think most of those, if not all, of those uh, positive cases on Haida Gwaii are a result of local residents that went off the islands and then returned, brought the brought that's the virus right. back to, with them. That's right. That's that's been that's yeah. been confirmed. And and you know, let's be absolutely clear. I mean, these these lodges, while they operate remotely, they ordinarily are you know uh, interacting with the community and are absolutely sympathetic and concerned about those COVID concerns. Though this. <laughs> You know, it's affecting the world, and and it's no different. And so they had, uh, like I say, they'd gone to fairly extraordinary measures and had been involved with conversation with uh, with uh, Haida Council uh, quite extensively for a, a long period of time. Uh, you know, leading up to this, leading up to the uh, to operating and everything else. And so it's it is frustrating. It's it's unfortunate. Uh, it is a bit of a microcosm of just how dramatic the effects of COVID are, are on the sport fishing industry, but, but many other industries as well. And, and so just uh, as, a, as a brief remark about COVID and sport fishing, yeah, it's, it's had a really big effect uh, early on in the season, particularly. It's affected um, you know, various lodges. Some have just determined that they just couldn't open because of the component of American or international visitors that they'd expected to come and obviously can't. Um, but on the other hand, now here we are in August, there are many charter operators in, uh, you know, South of Vancouver Island or Vancouver Island South that are, uh, are quite busy, uh, and, um, welcoming British Columbians and, uh, enjoying some really excellent fishing. 
Speaking to Owen Bird, he's the executive director of the BC Sport Fishing Institute. There, the the COVID outbreak on Haida Gwaii, as you mentioned, it's been determined and confirmed that all of those positive cases were residents of the island who went off island and then brought the virus back. There, there's is there has there been any evidence at all or suspicion or fear that any of those COVID cases were linked to the fishing lodges on the islands? Well, none whatsoever. As, yeah. as I mentioned to you, the, the, the distance between any sort of settle, regular set, settlement and those and the closest lodge is, is about 45 kilometers as the crow flies. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's a good, that's a wide margin beyond six feet. I'm being a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good social yeah. distancing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there any consultation? Like, I, I feel sorry for these lodges. I mean, these are businesses that are trying to hang on. And when the province went to a, a phase three and lifted the restrictions on domestic travel and the government said, okay, it's, it's okay to go on vacation here now within British Columbia. That's almost like a lifeline for some of these lodges and these guide outfitters and these fishing guides. At least, you know, they've lost all their their American customers as a result of COVID nineteen. But at least they could bring some locals out and let them take them out fishing, and maybe it helps some of them to to keep alive and stay in business. Well, you know that that's absolutely true. And I guess you know when when we say locals, we we really do mean British Columbians, and that's yeah. why it was it was really critically important that. You know, we have safety pro- safety protocols uh, available for the sport fishing industry to follow, and 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 that the public understands that those are in place as well, and and they are. And so when phase three came along, the you know the call was okay, we're ready, and uh, the the uh, those those uh, businesses can welcome uh, British Columbians, um, and uh, as long as the precautions are are being adhered to then uh this this is you know let's make the best what? or the most of what remains of the season to your knowledge was there any consultation with these fishing lodges in Haida Gwaii like did the government come to them and say look we're thinking of bringing in a travel ban can we work with you what do you think about that can we get your input or was it just a total blindside well i i do know that there had been a fair bit of dialogue leading up to it i mean i think Many probably saw some of the some of the objections that were being uh, being leveled uh, by uh, members of the Haida community. I don't think it was all because there was uh, discussion taking place. As far as it goes between the province and uh, those those three lodges, I'm uh, frankly I'm not I'm not sure. I don't I don't know what level of communication yeah. was was talked what occurred. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the uh, BC Sport Fishing Institute, which has been uh, hurt badly by the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest is Owen Bird. He's the executive director of the BC Sport Fishing Institute. Have a listen to this here. You're going to hear an exchange in the House of Commons, and um, this is a Conservative MP Bob Zimmer of British Columbia asking the uh, tourism minister, Melanie Jolie, for help for uh, the fishing and hunting industry. Have a listen to this. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. With an annual economic effect of over $5.5 billion and over 37,000 jobs supported nationally, the guide and outfitting sector is vital to Canada's rural and remote communities. In Canada, they typically welcome over 300,000 fishing and hunting clients from outside of Canada, the vast majority from the United States. With the border now closed at least until August 21st, an entire season has been lost and many outfitters are struggling to keep their businesses afloat. Outfitters I've spoken with are saying wage subsidies and loans aren't helping. 
What is this government doing to ensure our fishing and hunting guides and outfitters survive? The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Obviously, I agree with my colleague. Many outfitters and, and, and tourism operators are deeply impacted by the pandemic and the economic crisis. And that's why we decided to come up with a new fund, which is the Regional Recovery Fund, that is there to help them. We've been supporting many outfitters across Northern Ontario, across uh, Atlantic Canada and the West. And if my colleague has a specific case in mind, please come and see me. We can definitely look at it and we will continue to help them through, the, through these difficult times. Okay, it's the tourism minister there in the House of Commons. My guest is Owen Bird, BC Sport Fishing Institute. Are, are you guys getting enough help from government here to survive? Yeah, you know, in this case, it's you guys as in the tourism industry. Yeah. And, well, and yeah, or the, that, uh, you know, the sport fishing industry. Yeah, no, no, for, for sure. I'm just saying yeah. that, that sort of all those, you know, the sport fishing industry is absolutely affected in a very uh, strongly linked way to, to all kinds of tourism. And so I think the, the short answer is uh, specifically not, not really and largely in, in the, from the tourism perspective uh, better. But, uh, but there's a long way to go. I mean, as, as is discussed, uh, as Mr. Zimmer's remarks were, uh, it were made, we, the, uh, the season is, is largely lost for, for those that, you know, would welcome a lot of American guests. And even yeah. for those that welcome other Canadians uh, from other places where they just weren't able to travel earlier this year. And so the problem is, you know, do, do you give all those people money back? Or do you let them come next year and, uh, you know, and, and keep their money? And those, those kind of uh, things pose two different challenges. One is you're just kicking the problem down the road. And the other one is you, you have no money to operate and prepare for next season. And so the kind of funding that's been made available so far hasn't really addressed that big, big gap. That's right. a big, big problem getting to next year. Let's squeeze in a couple of phone calls here in the minutes we got left. John on the line in White Rock. Hi, John. Hey, brother. I uh, my concern is uh, the staffing of these uh, lodges probably be staffed by a lot of locals, and the concern there. I do think it's a little harsh that uh, they have to follow these regs when they're so isolated, but that is a concern. The locals going back into the community and Haida Gwaii and and. Queen Charlotte is relatively untouched and don't have the infrastructure to handle, and they're currently dealing with an outbreak. So that's my concern. Okay, thank you for the call. What do you think of that, Owen Bird? That that argument that maybe some of the local staff what might catch COVID from a guest and spread it. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, you know that of, of course that's a concern. There are there are locals involved in those operations. However, this year an unprecedented one. There, uh, as I understand it, I think the, the number of locals operate, working at those uh, lodges was limited this year. The, there, are, uh, there was both a, um, a, uh, a, a medic, a, a paramedic, and, uh, and a doctor sort of on call for all of those lodges. And it was, it was agreed, understood, and communicated that if there were any incidents of COVID at those lodges, that those cases would not go to the local, uh, you know, to the local uh, community hospitals or uh, clinics, but they would be flown directly out to Vancouver with absolutely those concerns in mind. So okay. it's it's a it's a thought, but it's it's that actually didn't play into uh, that didn't play into things. Okay, just over a minute left. Bernie and Tawasson, hi. Hi, it's Ernie. 
<laughs> Ernie, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ernie. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, just speaking about the uh, Queen Charlotte Lodges, uh, like the the guests did fly from Vancouver to uh, uh, to uh, Prince Rupert and they uh, helicopter right. privately to, uh, right to the lodge from Prince Rupert. They have a, a pad right there. Yeah. So and then uh, they were they were blindsided on Thursday. Uh, yeah. When the changeover day is Friday, now you have all these guests sitting in Vancouver on a Friday waiting to go up there, and uh, boom, it's canceled. They're it's, out of luck. Uh, totally unfair. And like they said, there is absolutely no contact with any of the communities. Uh, the Queen Charlotte Lodge is on Naden uh, Harbor, and it's there's no structures there at all except for the lodge. Ernie, uh, thank you, thank you very much for the, thanks for a lot for the call, and I, I appreciate the points that you made. And uh, yeah, I think it's unfair as well. I think that they could have worked this out uh, for sure. And that's uh, some small businesses there that are getting hurt uh, by this uh, situation. Owen Bird, thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much, Mike. Welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the back to school plan. School set to resume on Tuesday, September 8th, the day after Labor Day, the traditional day for schools to get started in the fall. The government has laid out its back to school plan last week. The BC Teachers Federation raising concerns about the plan. They want some changes to it. Also, some suggestion to delay the start of the school year. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Patty Backus. She is an education columnist for the Georgia straight she is the former vancouver school board chair i'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show patty thanks for coming on thanks for having me mike patty you've been tweeting a lot about the back to school plan and getting a lot of discussion going online Uh, tell me your concerns about the plan that was laid out by the government last week well i think like a lot of people i expected a shift to the stage two of the k-12 reopening plan that government put out in the spring um, and which which is what we got, but we got a revised version of stage two, and I think that surprised a lot of people. Um, the initial plan would be would have been a hybrid model for secondary, where half the students go for two days a week, and the other half the other two days, and the day in the middle, the teachers have time to do the remote uh, work. Um, what they came out with was everyone going back, and there's no um, no requirement to physically distance, no requirement to wear masks, and I think that. Uh, it certainly, I had to re-listen to it. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I thought, did I get that right? And uh, certainly that's the response I've heard from many parents and many uh, teachers and support workers and people who work in schools, that all this, um, all these precautions we've been taking about uh, limiting the people in our bubbles and, and keeping our distance and wearing masks when we can't uh, physically distance, suddenly that seems to be off the table when it comes to schools. And I certainly sympathize with parents of teens who've been trying to keep them in their bubbles through the summer and away from groups of friends and having to explain why it's all right for them to have what's essentially a bubble of up to 120 people next month. Okay, let's talk, and, a, and, you know, yeah. let's talk a little bit about that bubble, Patty. And um, I, I think you kind of put your finger on some of the, uh, the most controversial elements of the plan for sure. Uh, I'm just wondering how the, how can you open up a school and get kids back in class, which I would suggest to you as most people want to see happen, uh, without some sort of uh, risk of kids being together. Like at some point, even Bonnie Henry has said, you can't eliminate the risk of this virus. All you can do is sort of minimize it and manage it. Well, absolutely. And I, you know, it's all, I think for a public health officer, it's all about how do you balance risk? How do you, what are reasonable precautions? What are the steps we can take? And we do that in in many aspects of our lives, wearing seatbelts, things like that. We know there's still a risk, but 
how do we minimize the risk? I look at the Ontario plan that came out last week. They will be doing what, what, what we thought would be happening with our high schools, a maximum 15 students in a class. Uh, I think masks are mandatory for those who can tolerate them after about grade four. Um, far more precautions. What I was hoping for, and I agree, I think it's really important to get the schools open for a lot of students. Uh, they they will benefit tremendously from being back in class and being amongst their peers and getting those supports. But I expected far more in terms of precautions, uh, and 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 particularly in secondary. I, I just can't get my head around these potential grouped groupings of 120 students, given that many families have more than one child. So. Yeah, I know. I think you have kids in school. If you have two or three kids, suddenly your your bubble is in the hundreds, which yeah. starts to seem just just really risky. Well, so I thought we'd see bigger bigger risk mitigation. I thought we'd see smaller groupings, uh, not all kids in school every day. I thought there would be. I was hoping for increased. Uh, Attention to PPE, whether it was a stronger encouragement, maybe not mandatory masks, but a stronger encouragement versus sort of, well, they're optional if you want. Well, they are, they are um, encouraging. Didn't they say that, okay, we're not making masks mandatory, but masks will be available for anyone who wants one? And we're encur- they're not encouraging people to wear a mask? I, I, I hear it available. I haven't necessarily heard encouraging. And I, yeah. you know, I suspect yeah. some individual teachers may encourage their students to wear them. I certainly would be encouraging my kids, but I have no control over the other 100-odd kids who may have been in their bubble. My kids are out of school, and I'm so grateful for that because, you know, I'm hearing so many parents who are really concerned. They have uh, uh, health issues themselves or they live with a grandparent uh, questioning whether they'll continue to have the grandparents in the family bubble once school starts, uh, all kinds of factors that, that this is, I think this is a lot more than we expected. And I don't think we're seeing this in other jurisdictions. This Everyone's going to okay. go back and just, it's really different. Okay, let's talk about the 120 co- uh, student cohort in high school. You know, for, for people who've got kids in high school, I got one son in high school, my other son, just he just graduated grade 12, but... Uh, you know, he did experience the going back to school, I guess, intermittently at the end of the last school year. And when you talk about let's do maybe do high school two days a week, I just wonder if the government is looking at that and wondering how sustainable or valuable that is. I mean, I saw my own kids go back to school two days a week and they didn't get a whole lot out of it. They got more out of the distance learning than they did being in, in class two days a week. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, I hear variations of that. I was just talking with a high school teacher last week who said some of her students had really sort of thrived in the remote learning, that that kids who had been very withdrawn and not engaged in class were really opening up to her because she was able to have more one-on-one communication. So certainly for some students, remote learning worked really well, others not at all. I think the June model, it's very hard to, to take much from that because the numbers were very low in the high schools and they weren't regular classes. They were kind of like come in and get some help and it, it wasn't really what I would expect, would have expected in the original stage two. I would have thought there'd be more scheduled timetable classes for two days and, and more grouping so students would actually see more of their, their classmates as what, well. Okay. What about uh, delaying the start of the school year? Right now, the back-to-school start date is Tuesday, September 8th, the day after Labor Day. Some suggestion from uh, the teachers' union that that should be delayed. Do you think it should be delayed? Oh, absolutely. I mean, typically uh, in elementary, kids go back, they go to their old classrooms with their old uh, classroom grouping for the first week. In many school districts, 
um, that will uh, immediately expand their their learning group. They they may try to organize them ahead of time and get the word out to families. But the first week in schools can often be pretty chaotic, and and some students show up they weren't expecting, and others don't show up who they thought would be coming back. And you do need that time to organize. And often they put them in very large groupings and do different activities as the staff madly works to figure out classroom organization. I think given all of the protocols and things that need to be considered, um, they need to have some time to do that. I think it's, it's madness to expect uh, staff to all return on the same day students return. And as we know, teachers are not paid during the summer. They're not working right now. You can't tell them to come in you know, the week before. So I think it, it would the, the least they could do is push back the student start date, get staff on site, and give them a chance to work out the logistics of what's going okay. to be a massive organizational challenge. All right, welcome back. Uh, talking about back to school with my guest, Georgia Strait Education columnist Patty Backus. Your calls to her, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go right to your calls. Betty in Delta, hi. Hi, thank you so much for um, creating this space for us to have this conversation and bringing in Patty, who's amazing. Um, So I'm a teacher and a parent of special needs kids, and I am absolutely terrified. My husband has severe asthma that is never under control on a daily basis. He's had it since he was born, so his lungs are very damaged because he's 59 years old. And there is no accommodation for me. So you don't want me to be your kid's teacher because you don't want me to be scared of your kid. I'm going to be teaching grade four, and I am scared of my students already. I can't sleep at night already. And I have no choice because my husband had to retire early so he could stay home with our son because the school could not meet his needs. And so I am the income earner. And I'm going to be going in scared. I'm going to be carving off a two-meter space. I'm going to buy a partition for my desk. I'm going to take my kids outside as often as I can. But I am not going to be able to be the teacher I love being. And it's not fair. If I had half my class, I could create some distance. My classroom is so small that our table, they have to sit across from each other at the tables. The tables are two feet wide. So there is not a one-meter space for kids to be sitting across from each other. And usually, it's a great space. I love my classroom. It's fabulous. But in the conditions we're in with the pandemic, with my kids sitting so close together, their coat hooks are, I'm guessing, about 25 centimeters apart. So you have to handle everybody's stuff to get at your stuff. There's just physically no space in my classroom. And we are going to be filling it with up to 30 kids. Uh, maybe 28 if I have an EA, which is likely. So then there's another adult in the room. And then I have a student teacher coming, so three adults in the room, all of whom should have two meters. Okay. There's Betty, just no room. Betty, let, let me ask yeah. you, I really appreciate your phone call. I, I, I can hear the emotion in your voice there. Um, let me ask you this. You mentioned about accommodation. So at the end of the last school year, did you did you ask for an accommodation? Like, did you ask your the district to let your school to let you work I from did. home? I did. Yeah, yeah and I got an accommodation either because I have asthma or because of my husband. I don't know why they gave it to me, but what they have said is there will be very few available. And on the page, the, on our HR page, it says specifically that asthma is not included by Fraser Health. Yeah. And it says that um, uh, accommodations, like the, the court case that allows for accommodations, is only if you are needed to be a caregiver at home. 
So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be able to fight another court case to say I should stay home because my husband okay. has severe asthma. Okay, you Betty, th- th- thank you very much for the call. Uh, Patty, uh, what do you think of that? Well, I'm hearing, like, really worrisome stories like that from teachers, and not, not just teachers, also parents of kids who have family members who have health issues as well that are, you know, what, what I think a lot expected is there would be some choice in the plan for fall for those who didn't want to attend school, and there really isn't well, do you, do you think that Do you think that Betty, in the... the the detailed description she gave of her situation there, do you think she should be given an accommodation and allowed to work from home? Well, I'd certainly like that that option to be available, but the reality is we had a teacher shortage prior to the pandemic, and I expect that that's only becoming more more of a of a factor and that school boards are trying to ensure they're going to have enough teachers on site to teach uh, all the students who show up. So, you know, it's a dilemma, but I think yeah. it's to ask teachers to put the health and safety of themselves or their family on the line is it doesn't seem yeah. fair to me yeah it's a tough situation jillian in vancouver hi jillian oh hello hi. um yeah i i think betty said most of what i was going to say but then i have another question is for high school students if you put them in a cohort of 120 people um a even if you could get them to only uh, hang out with those that with that 120 people how would they even know who's in their 120 person cohort and how are they going to split up physically the cohorts from others high, high schools when you have 1500 people in a high school it's really it's extremely crowded so how do we go from telling our kids you know i have a 15 year old okay you can only have a small pod of like four friends and uh you know no parties and no large gatherings even outdoors and then tell them now that okay well you're in september in in five weeks you're going to go back to a school where there's going to be 1,500 people in there. So how do yeah, we Yeah, and with 120, it's a really good point. Thank you for the call. Like 120-person cohort, how are, how are kids supposed to know who is in their cohort and who's not? Do they, do you know, Patty? I mean, are they going to give everybody a list or people wearing color-coded I mean, name tags? What's going on? How are you going to do that? I, I'm not sure if it'll be yeah. sort of by homeroom class numbers or something like that, but yeah, I just right. call their points out. You know, you I've raised teenagers. If they want to, if their friends aren't in their cohort, they're going to well, find yeah. a way to get together. What with if your friends. What if your you boy What if your boyfriend or your girlfriend's in another cohort? Then what? Then what oh, happens? Absolutely, you'll be you'll oh. be texting and meeting up in the you know meeting up somewhere on any yeah. possible break. I mean, but just the reality. We know that, um, and and of course they're going to have siblings as well who have these groups. So it just uh, seems logistically right. really tough. Yeah, Sandy in Vancouver. Hi, Sandy. Hi, thanks for having this show. Um, I sure. guess my point is, um, in elementary school setting, I have a son who's immunocompromised, and we live with my mom, uh, who's 85. So that's a concern. I, I, I don't understand how cohorts of 60 uh, come to school and move around the school, the gym, whatever. How are they going to negotiate which cohort goes where during a specific specific part of the day without running into another cohort. They've got to separate these cohorts. This is going to be difficult. Uh, I, I guess they're still figuring this out. Patty? Yeah, I think so, and which would be another argument for delaying the start of students attending school. They're going to need time to work this out amongst the staff as well. I don't know that it's going to be possible in every case. I do expect there will be staggered bell schedules that different cohorts move at different times. 
But that's right. tricky too if you're all sharing a gymnasium or a library in different spaces. I think they'll stagger lunch hours and things like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, these schools, some of them, the they're all different layouts and formats and different sizes. So you know, it's uh, it's going to be a busy time between now and okay. the start of school for people Sue. to figure this out. Sue in Abbotsford. We just got a minute left here. Sue. Hi, thanks for having me. And Patty, thanks for your advocacy. I'd like to bring in educational assistants and TOCs into the mix as well and, and show concern for them. And I'm wondering if there's any other group of essential workers that are being sent back to work with basically no recommendations for safety, nothing for masks, no physical distancing. Uh, back in June, I had a whole two students in my class, and both of them wore, wore masks. So if an eight- or nine-year-old can do it without complaint, it's possible for others as well, and I think it's prudent for safety. Okay, well, thank you for the call. Well, the government is putting $45 million on the table for safety and cleaning protocols and personal protective equipment, and people who want a mask will have a mask. But, uh, Patty, we got 30 seconds left here. Well, masks protect other people so uh it, hopefully a lot of people will want them i think the, the caller raises a really important point though like for the support workers for the substitute teachers i mean are they going to be limited to one particular learning group or are they going to be dispatched different schools on different days um right. and and i i you know that's a that's a question that has not been answered and it's a real concern thanks for coming on my pleasure Okay, welcome back to the show. We're going to talk a little sports here on the show. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm enjoying uh, the return of sports on TV. We got NHL hockey going in a playoffs, a unique playoff format here uh, with the NHL back in action in two hub cities in Edmonton and Toronto. Uh, we've got NBA action going. We have got Major League Baseball underway as well, although some of the COVID outbreaks could threaten the remainder of the Major League Baseball season. Lots going on. If you love your sports, let's check in with Rob Williams now, sports editor at the Daily Hive. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Rob. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. Are you enjoying seeing sports back on TV? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> the um, It's been too long. I... I I almost don't care that it's the best weather in the whole summer we're going to get in Vancouver. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy to sit inside and watch some hockey again. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm enjoying it too. And the quality of the games, um, in especially at the, NA, the NHL games I've watched, uh, the NBA, there's been some really good NBA basketball as well. I don't know if it's uh, a factor of these guys being cooped up in this bubble and they've been raring to go, but man, there's been some real playoff quality uh, play going on. Would you agree? Definitely. I I mean, I would say that that's true no more than um, the very first game between the New York Rangers and Carolina Hurricanes. It's like both teams were shot out of a cannon. There was uh, huge body checks, a goal, there was an injury, there was all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, we've already seen some uh, bad blood between the uh, Winnipeg Jets and Calgary Flames with Mark Scheifele getting injured um, by uh, Matthew Kachuk and, and uh, Winnipeg's coach Paul Maurice coming out and basically saying it was a dirty play and that he did it intentionally and, and cut the back of his leg. Um, so there's, uh, you know, there's no fans in the crowd, but uh, there's still that playoff uh, feeling in, in the game so far. 
Yeah, I want to get I want to get your take on that hit, by the way, and that uh, that that coach lashed out at and called it a filthy, disgusting hit. I'll I'll play that I'll play the clip on that in just a, just a minute. But let me ask you, Rob, about the Canucks. Uh, the Canucks uh, going into this playoff round against the Minnesota Wild, pretty close matchup. But uh, some of the betting odds that I had seen in in Las Vegas had the Canucks as a slight favorite here to win this uh, series in advance in the playoffs. But they lost game one. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be uh, too alarmist. It's just one game. Um, but it, that really was kind of, I think, that the worst-case scenario kind of played out in game one, where the Canucks are supposedly are supposed to have the advantage in goal. Yeah. Jacob Markstrom let in a soft goal. Meanwhile, Alex Stalock for the Wild was, you know, he was perfect. He didn't let in a single goal. And then the other thing that was supposed to play into the Canucks – uh, advantage was their their top offensive players were superior to Minnesota's, and it, that just kind of turned out to be the opposite as well. Kevin Fiala scored a, a goal off a great shot. He's Minnesota's top offensive player. Meanwhile, of course, the Canucks players were, were shut down, but worse than that, they, they didn't get a ton of great scoring chances. A lot of their chances were uh, from the outside, and that's what Travis Green said after the game, is that he, he thinks that his players need to work harder to get into the middle of the ice and, and get into prime shooting positions like that. Um, and mm-hmm. But, you know, this is what Minnesota does. They have a very strong defense. They ha- yeah. have uh, four four solid lines, and so they're, they're, they kind of stifled the Canucks' um, top players in, in game one, and, and the Canucks are going to have to find a way to fight through that. Yeah, I watched the game. It was frustrating as a as a Canucks fan to watch it because you just feel like, okay, the Canucks would appear to have a, a, a talent advantage here, but they didn't seem to be able, able to overcome that kind of suffocating defense that uh, Minnesota was able to put on, on the ice there. Can the Canucks make some adjustments there and counteract that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they, a lot of it's going to be... Um you know, tactical and, and just working harder to, to, to fight through those checks and get to the middle of the ice. I do think that they've got some options uh, with their lineup. Jake Bertanen, who scored 18 goals during the regular season, he was on his way to scoring, uh, you know, getting to the 20-goal plateau, uh, was a healthy scratch in the first game. And uh, he's clearly not a favorite of, of the coach, but I wonder if there's a, a spot for him in the lineup. Uh, Michael Furlan, there was talk about him maybe getting suspended for, for spearing a wild player. He just got off with a fine today, so... Um, that he could come in for Furland, he could come in for one of their fourth liners. Um, so there, I think there's options there. Um, but you know, Travis Green was was pretty calm after the game. I, I don't get the sense that he's going to make a, a bunch of uh, rush panic moves. Um, and and again, I don't I don't think the major issue with the Canucks was their fourth line necessarily. Um, they need their best players to be able to, to fight through this and and uh, and find a way to beat uh, Alex Stalock. Okay. Okay, game is a best-of-five series. Uh, game two in that series is tomorrow, so we'll see if the Canucks bounce back. Okay, Rob, let's talk about this uh, this uh, very bad blood in this series here between the Calgary Flames and the Winnipeg Jets and this controversial hit. So this is the Winnipeg center. Mark Shifley leaves the game, left leg injury after he got hit by Matthew Kachuk from the Calgary Flames. And I'm just wondering if you think this is as a dirty a hit as some people think. Let's have a listen to the Winnipeg Jets coach, head coach here, 
Paul Maurice. He, he sure thought it was a dirty hit. Here's what he said. Paul, uh, what was your impression of the uh, play involving Shifley when he was injured? Oh, it was intentional. Kind of a filthy, dirty kick to the back of the leg. You can't see it on the program feed, but you take the blue line feed and you zoom in. He went after the back of his leg. Could have cut his tillies. It could end the man's career. It's an absolutely filthy, disgusting hit. Filthy, dirty, disgusting <laughs> play. He says that the uh, the other player kicked the guy in the back of the leg with a. Well, obviously, a skate blade could cause a catastrophic injury there to a player. Is that what you saw? Because I I looked at the replays of this, Paul, and I was like, I don't know. That didn't look like a didn't look like a kick to me. But your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the skate blade does come up, uh, and I understand why Winnipeg um, would be upset. You know, they're losing their number one center. It looks like a pretty significant injury. It probably keeps them out for the rest of the series. Could result in their season being over, and, you know, they're down one nothing. So I understand being um, being frustrated. I don't. I think it's really hard to say that, that he would have done that on purpose. I, I, I think that that's a type of play that, uh, just NHL players just are. Just, I don't know of any NHL players that are known for trying to cut a player's leg. Oh, like that's yeah. just sort of, it's just not a thing that that's really done. And to be able to do that, if you're you're going at such a high uh, speed, you're going for the body check and, and any turns, and you're just trying to get your leg out and and you know get a piece of the guy. I, I don't see that as like, oh, okay, maybe I'll get a a skate blade on the back of his leg. I so I don't see it that way at all. And I thought. Um, Kachuk's uh, comments afterwards were, I thought he was pretty convincing. I don't, I don't he think say? he's that good of an actor. Oh, he said he is absolutely, he said absolutely not. He's like, he's like, I'm just, he said it's a terrible accident. I feel terrible. Like it's, it's one of these things. And, and apparently he's a guy that he knows and he's trained with him in the summer or two. Like, I, I just, I just don't see it. I mean, Kachuk is a, is an agitator and, and um, you know, a, a guy that, uh, that doesn't make a lot of friends on the ice. So I think that that yeah. probably plays into this as well. But, but you know, it's, it's, there's one thing to be an, an agitator and play guys hard. And it's another thing to like try to, you know, cut a guy tendon or something on his leg. I, so I, I don't, I don't see it. Um, and, and it's just such a fast play that I, I just I just yeah. don't see how a player would do that on purpose. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I watched the replay a couple of times, and I didn't see it. Didn't look like to me like he was trying to cut the guy's Achilles tendon with his skate. Uh, I just I'm just not buying that. I think maybe the 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 uh, Winnipeg Jets coach there are trying to fire his his guys up here to try and come back in the series. Um, I'll tell you what I I've been enjoying the sports on TV. The hockey's great. The the NBA's great. Do you think they're doing a good job in this? And, and what are your thoughts on Major League Baseball? Who seem to be having the most trouble here? Do you, do you think that, are you confident uh, baseball season is going to continue? Yeah, I mean, um, look at the NHL. They just announced uh, not long ago that they've. Uh, got another week of, of zero positive uh, tests. So that's two weeks in a row, which is great. And they had, so they've had two positive tests in three weeks and, and none since they've entered the bubble. Major League Baseball is a mess. Uh, their season is in danger of being uh, canceled. They're, um, they're testing their players, but they are not social distancing. They are not in a bubble. Many of them are not wearing masks. Um, I kind of feel like it's what, like, what did you expect? They're playing in all sorts of, um, you know, places where there's lots of coronavirus uh, around. Yeah. They're playing in Florida. They're playing in Texas and Arizona and California. Uh, they're going all over the place. They're traveling. Um, 
yeah, why did they? Why really did they? Uh, why did they not do the bubble mode like the other leagues are doing? Yeah, apparently the players' association they they weren't keen on on uh, doing that for a full season. Although that was, um, you know, before they decided to do a, a sixty game season. I mean, I, I could someone understand a one hundred and sixty two game season playing for the full summer, um, but I really think that they needed to have some sort of. Um, you know, even if you do, you don't want to be away from your family for two to three months, of course, maybe there's a way to have a bubble for, you know, four four to six weeks, and then leave the bubble to spend time with your family for a week, and then go back in or something. I, I just don't okay. see, you know, how they thought that this would work while also not taking a ton of precautions uh, when they're on the field.